why would anyone, I don't care if it's a hundred dollars, say, I'm going to give Hunter Biden money to invest. The exact same goes for Jared Kushner. Like, why are you giving these people money to invest? Put them on a board and give them a million dollars a month if that's how you want it. Throw around the name. That's name value. Yes. Yes. That I get. That's fine. That's That's fine. fine. I mean, it's not great. it's, It's not great. Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm joined, as always, by former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative analyst, commentator, and consultant Alicia Preston. We get perspectives from the left, right, and center about everything going on, and we dive beyond the headlines. Speaking of headlines, we have a really hot off the presses. That's not a thing anymore because who reads newspapers? We have a really hot breaking item. Oh, you're so you're so retro, Alicia Preston. So we have some breaking news. Gary Hirschberg, the longtime Stonyfield CEO, well-known name around New Hampshire, has formed a political committee that looks like looks like we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, a prelude to a run for governor. If he took that step, that would set him up in a primary against recent Paul Hodes guest on Capitol Close-Up, Senator Tom Sherman, who also was in the very podcast feed that we appear in here. Paul, you know both of these gentlemen very well. I am not putting you on the spot to make any kind of selection. We Again, we don't know yet if this primary is actually going to take shape. But if this does come together the way it looks like, what does that tell you? What, what, what does that mean that we might have a primary of this magnitude? Well, it's kind of a fascinating development. Um, Over the years, uh, I think Gary has probably considered uh, his own political fortunes. He's been a supporter of Democratic candidates um, for a long time. uh, Before he he moved, he had a fabled living room in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, where many candidates at various levels came. Um, so he's been uh, very active. He he's a businessman. He's built he built a, success, a hugely successful company um, uh, with a social conscience, a company that uh, returns its uh, part of its profits to um, important causes. Um, and so it's fascinating after his, uh, I guess we'd call it a retirement. Um, he, he'd sold Stonyfield to the French Danone company. He'd been, he's involved in some other uh, ventures, but um, lately on Facebook, I've seen pictures of him uh, kiteboarding, um, winter kiteboarding on Squam Lake. Uh, so um, uh, I'd heard about this rumor, but thought it was only a rumor, but he's now formed a political committee. And for those uh, in New Hampshire who know and know how it goes. When somebody forms a political committee, you could say, okay, they're now uh, able to explore a run for governor, but rarely does one form a political committee if one is not serious about running for governor. So I suppose the knock from the right will be, well, that we'll just ignore that he's a successful businessman. I mean, really successful businessman, built a business from a couple of cows in a field into a major global uh, power. Uh, we'll ignore that. And we'll just say, oh, he's so far left. He's like Andy Volinsky. And I suppose some would try to see this as a replay for Democrats, uh, if assuming that 
Gary runs of uh, left wing uh, versus centrist to the extent that Tom Sherman, uh, who was a doctor, um, has an accomplished legislative record in the time he's been uh, both a representative and a senator. And I suppose some will try to set that up. You know, one of the questions is that Gary has um, Gary has a certain amount of personal wealth. Uh, Tom Sherman has been raising money for a short time now, but has been doing pretty well. And Sherman has signed up uh, a large number of state reps and uh, other fellow senators uh, in the Democratic Party. So to that extent, um, Gary's candidacy, uh, if assuming it will be a candidacy, is somewhat of an insurgency uh, because uh, Tom Sherman um, has somewhat of a head start in terms of endorsements and support. So it's, um, it could be a, a battle of you know, money. It could be a money battle. And I would think that uh, there would be uh, different emphasis uh, on different issues for Gary Hirschberg as opposed to Tom Sherman, both of them, uh, in, you know, kind of in, in important areas, Sherman on healthcare, um, uh, Hirschberg on environment, um, sound business practices, uh, and um, uh, energy. Alicia, your reaction? Well, um, Paul is wrong about what conservatives like me will have as first complaints against Gary, because my first complaint is he got rid of the cream on top yogurt, which was my favorite yogurt in the world. And they chose to get rid of that. And that made me sad. Um, and so that's my biggest complaint against the dude, to be perfectly honest. But beyond that, uh, look, he is a Gary, uh, an Andrew Valinsky-esque candidate. Uh, you know, why, let someone tell me why these guys who are very successful make jillions of dollars decide to run for office. I'd like keep on that boat or board or whatever he was on in a lake and then go somewhere warm and do it there. I don't understand why people feel the need to run for office when they don't need to make money. I'd be on a boat somewhere. But beyond that, look, he is the liberal and it, it will be liberal against moderate in the Democratic primary. Uh, I support Chris Sununu. I always have, and I will continue to do so. But from an analytical standpoint, uh, I'm surprised that, you know, this primary was pushed. As we know, in New Hampshire, you have six to eight weeks to recover from a primary. This would be a tight primary. Uh, and, and then now they have to run a primary. Tom Sherman has to run a real primary against Gary Hirschberg before he can start doing a general election. That takes a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of effort. I think it increases Chris Sununu's chances of reelection, which I think are pretty safe to begin with. Um, but we're going to see what we saw two years ago, which is which wing of the Democratic Party wins. Last time, Andrew Valinsky did not win his primary. Uh, you know, Tom Sherman is my state senator. I like him very much. I respect him very much. Uh, I, I do not think he's going to beat Chris Sununu, but, uh, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where the Democratic Party lies when it comes to who they put forward as a nominee. I totally agree with that. And I'll, I'll echo, first of all, your sentiments. I worked with Tom Sherman when I was a staffer in the New Hampshire State Senate. He was serving on the, the uh, committee that at the time Governor Maggie Hassan pulled together to evaluate Medicaid expansion. He brought to bear his experience as a doctor, his expertise about health care, and he was a critical part of that panel. And I respect him very much. He's a very thoughtful uh, figure who I think would make an excellent governor. I've also been uh, in the living room of Gary Hirschberg. And look, it's an open secret in politics that the DSCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and the Democratic Governors Association have been playing footsie with Gary Hirschberg for a long time. 
Why? Because it's awfully attractive to get a candidate into a race who can self-fund. If you can bring your own money to the table, then that's one race that national Democrats don't have to spend lots of money on, and it frees things up for everyone else. And as races have gotten more and more expensive, that's just super attractive. And Gary has many other uh, attributes that are in his favor. The thing I'm going to look for most, if this primary takes shape, which again, we don't know for sure that it will, besides the question of can you just buy an election? Is money still the big stick in American politics? And I have many questions about whether it is. The big question to me is, will Gary Hirschberg actually position himself to the left? Because there's a little bit of a misnomer, a misunderstanding about democratic politics, that the successful strategy is to swing left because that's where the party's base is. It is not. That's not true in New Hampshire. It's not true around the country. In 2018, Our Revolution, the Bernie Sanders group that looks to support super progressive, even democratic socialist type candidates, batted 0 for 27 in primaries around the country. The, the batting average in general of, of far left candidates is not great. The energy in the Democratic Party may be in, in the headlines and on Twitter on the far left, but the reality in the base is that it's much closer to the center. And there is a tradition in New Hampshire politics and in politics in general of coming in and positioning yourself as a can-do, practical, down-to-earth business type, like the very successful Governor John Lynch. Even Maggie Hassan, before she became a U.S. Senator, positioned herself as a relatively practical, anodyne, you know, no-nonsense centrist, and it worked very well for her. That's obviously what's made Phil Scott in Vermont and uh, the governors of uh, Larry Hogan in, in Maryland and, you know, governor, Republican governors in otherwise Democratic states successful is Look, you know, trying to Matt, position themselves that way. So I, I think it would be very interesting for Gary to try to follow that track. I don't think he will, but I think that would be interesting. I, I think in New Hampshire that only, only someone who positions themselves in the John Lynch, um, uh, John, John Lynch mode, um, uh, the gun, frankly, the John Lynch Shaheen Hassan mode, which is, centrist, practical, common sense, business oriented um, can prevail. And I think that if Hirschberg, uh, it, it would be hard for Sherman to put himself there. Um, just difficult because he doesn't have the same kind of business experience. But if Hirschberg came in talking about uh, what, he, what he's done for business, what he's done for people through his business, um, it, that makes a pretty interesting. That makes a pretty interesting race in New Hampshire. Um, of course, uh, smart folks like Alicia will do everything they can to to challenge his 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 centrist or progressive centrist credentials. Um, but it's going to be hard to argue with a successful businessman who says, "Look, I managed a business from a couple of cows to lots of employees." I can manage the state. So I'd like to move on to another piece of, it's not quite breaking, but it's pretty darn close. There has been a plea deal in the case of one of the Proud Boys, one of six ringleaders among that far-right group who have been responsible for a conspiracy that led to the January 6th attack. I'm not just asserting this. This is a matter of what this gentleman pled to. And so we have this new plea deal from Charles Donahoe of Kernersville, North Carolina. 
one of these six Proud Boy members. He faces up to seven years in prison. And he's essentially saying, yes, I engaged in a conspiracy to that led to the insurrection. That's what it was. It was a criminal conspiracy. And he's one of now over 800 people who face criminal charges as part of the insurrection. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, for some reason, I guess Republican leaders still can't cop to the fact that this was an insurrection. Are we kind of done? On this show, we've been done with that lie for a long time. Alicia, is this going to finally put a nail in that coffin? Or no, not so much. We're, we're still going to fight out over the basic reality of what happened on January 6th. 2021. Well, I'm not going to fight over the basic reality because it is the basic reality of what happened on January 6th. Uh, Look, I think this plea deal is more than just one guy. Part of his agreement is he's got to testify against a whole bunch of other guys that were part of the Proud Boys um, who's who had planned on going to trial. So what's going to be interesting is if understanding that they've got one of their own willing to testify against them, do they uh, and provide this, you know, encrypted app. There are messages that they planted on this encrypted app. Now the authorities will have that. Uh, Do they do plea deals themselves or do they go to trial? And, you know, as more people who were seriously involved, you know, with charges that get them six, seven years, uh, as more people plead guilty to these kinds of things, will that be what turns the tide? Not for the, you know, Marjorie, whatever her name, Green is, ladies. But for a lot of people, including, you know, those of us out here, I think it will. I think this may be a start of seeing that the people involved admit what they were trying to do. How can you deny it? Paul, I want to give you full credit that one of the things you identified early on as a former prosecutor is that conspiracy is where it's at from a prosecutorial standpoint, that it doesn't it it doesn't take as much as the existing U.S. statute about seditious conspiracy or trying to foment an insurrection. You can conspiracy is is a pretty good blanket charge that is very prosecutable from your standpoint. And that's bearing out in what we're seeing today. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, this guy Donahoe was was a regional leader. He wasn't he wasn't at the very top. And that that that's interesting because uh, the prosecutors have now reached below the very top uh, of some of his co-defendants like Henry Enrique Terrio, uh, the leader. Um, but in the documents that Donahoe pleaded guilty to, um, it, uh, it, it, it indicates that while he wasn't given details of the plot, he understood that the goal was to interfere with certifying uh, the, elector, uh, the election. And, and the pleading says he understood from discussions that the group would pursue this through the use of force and violence uh, in order to show Congress that, quote, we the people, unquote, were in charge. Um, So when you plead guilty in this way, you agree to the accuracy of the of the statements in the document, they've essentially laid out this kind of conspiracy. um, And in agreeing to cooperate fully with the government, uh, there are approximately there's something like 50 of of these guys who are being prosecuted. So it certainly um, uh, makes things a lot tougher for any proud boy who is trying to defend against these kinds of charges. That's, that's, a, that's a, a large group of people. Now, it doesn't do much to go after Trump 
and his associates um, at the very uh, top of the of the food chain. But it certainly goes after a very visible, very um, engaged group of people who stormed who stormed the Capitol. Um, and remember Donald Trump saying to the Proud Boys, "Stand by." Well. They stood by him and now they're going down. Yeah, they were doing a lot more than standing by. They were, um, you know, they, they were running the show behind the scenes. All right, let's let's move on. I, you know, we, we are coming up to a break for a radio listeners, podcast listeners. It'll just evaporate for you. I want to just hit very quickly on a new initiative from the Biden administration. Merrick Garland, the attorney general of the United States, wrote an op-ed in USA Today in which he announced that they're going after a new rule on ghost guns. Now, ghost guns are basically self-assembly gun kits, and they don't have serial numbers. There's no way for law enforcement to track them back from crime scenes, and that makes it super hard on police officers to try to investigate crimes. And so what the Biden administration is proposing in this rule is they are going to treat ghost guns the same as every other firearm. They've got to be traceable. They've got to have serial numbers. This is to help law enforcement. Alicia, I know that when it comes to the Second Amendment, you may not have exactly the same views as, let's say, Paul Hodes, but it does seem like for a Republican Party that's tried to make an issue of the police and, you know, and support for law enforcement, this kind of seems like it should be something we can all agree on. Do you read it the same way? Do you think the politics of this will make this an issue that Republicans will not try and stand in the way of? Or are we going to see the same usual kind of gun politics that we usually see? Well, I don't think it's gun politics. I think it's constitutional politics. I'm not even talking about the Second Amendment. You know, they're calling it a rule change. They're calling it regulatory. But in Biden's speech just before we came on here, he said the word it makes it illegal to it makes it illegal to on various different things. Multiple times he said his rule is going to make it illegal to do a host of things for manufacturers and shippers and other people. Um, the problem with that is that's not his job. You know whose job it is to make things illegal? The people who write laws. Do you know who the Constitution grants that right to? The United States Congress, and specifically says the Congress, not the president, makes laws. We can and should have a debate about ghost guns. I'm open to that discussion in Congress. Watch them have the discussion, the merits. How big of a problem is it? Let, let us know, is this a crime issue? Is this what's being used in shootings? But the president, by no means, he can call it a rule. He can call it a regulation. He said he's making things illegal and doing it by himself. That is highly unconstitutional. All presidents have done something that oversteps their authority, but this one's kind of huge. I'm going to push back just very slightly on this because I read it in a different way. The, these changes relate to federal regulations that define what a firearm is. They haven't been updated in more than 50 years. Think about any product in America that has existed for more than 50 years. If you haven't defined what that is in the last five decades, it's probably changed substantially. Just think about how much, for example, the definition of a phone has changed. Frequently when Congress passes laws, which they are constitutionally obligated to do, they give discretion for writing regulations to federal agencies to do the fine-grained details of what is this apply to. And there are very strict rules on how those regulations can get set. So in this case, to me, this fits entirely under the Constitution and the authority that Congress has given. But we've got to take a very quick break. We can pick this up on the other end of this break. More on Alicia telling me why I'm wrong in just a moment. 
Alicia, you're about to smack me down to pond scum level. Go ahead. There is no way. And if uh, hey, if I'm wrong, show it to me. We'll discuss it again. That there is a statute that intended to give the executive branch the right to define a gun because you could have Looney Tooney in there who wants to define a gun as a pizza cutter. I mean, there is no way that anyone on something so extremely serious to the constitutional rights of the United States of America, that the White House, the executive branch of our government was given blanket authority by the Congress to define in any way, shape or form that they want, what is a gun and what falls under their regulations. Look, a ghost gun becomes a gun. We all know this, but that is not the issue. The issue is, can the White House unilaterally make this change? And again, I want to repeat, Joe Biden in his press conference announcing this said this will make it illegal for manufacturers to x this will make it illegal for sellers to x this will make it illegal for buyers to x if you are making something illegal you are making law if you are making law and you are not a member of congress you don't have the right to do that all right so here's where i love you but i think you're wrong because this actually happens in federal regulation all the time. There is a very clear procedure for how rules from federal agencies are made and they're subject to review and public comment. They take multiple years to make and then they're subject to judicial review. And frequently the judiciary will come in and say, yes, this is when the bounds of what Congress has handed you as authority. No, this is not within the bounds. But yes, it happens all the time that Congress hands over authority to federal agencies to say, this is what fits within the definition. This is what's not. And then it is reviewed by the courts. And so, no, this isn't on its face. And nothing wrong with this. Nothing surprising about this. Nothing even unusual about this. And this is, again, Congress using its constitutional authority to pass the law and then allowing the federal agency to say, what does this apply to? And if they get it incredibly wrong and they say, I don't know, a Nerf gun counts as a firearm, then you can be sure that that will be subject under the process that's set up under the constitution, it'll be subject to public pushback and judicial review, and it won't be allowed. Let me just add something here. First of all, Matt is right. I mean, bottom line, Matt is right. Alicia, you're totally But, 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 But what's interesting to me is the yada yada from my good friend, Alicia Preston, the yada yada, which is, let's not talk about the issue. Let's try to divert to another issue. And the issue I'm is I'm not diverting. Pe- That's people, my biggest problem. The people have been buying these made make it yourself AR-15s and handguns. They've been buying them. They're unregistered, can't be registered. They can't be tracked with a serial number. Crime is rising. The use of these unregistered, non-serialized guns is shooting up, and something had to be done. So President Biden takes a reasonable, usual presidential action. I mean, calling it illegal. Well, now with the regulations adjusted, it's going to be illegal to do it. He does the right thing. And what Alicia, who is probably a little bit to the right of me about gun regulations, (laughs) says is let's not talk about the fact that we're going to be now able to track uh, track these ghost guns and maybe we're going to be able to do, uh, you know, put a little bit of a dent in the crime surge and the use of these ghost guns. She goes all yada yada on President Biden for doing the right thing. So, folks, just so you know, when the pinata gets set up by the Republicans about the yada yada, President Biden doesn't have the right to do this. President Biden can't do that. President Biden, oh, you said something bad. You said illegal. So it's yada yada. The fact is he had the right. He did the right thing. And 
and it's time to have some reasonable regulation of this highly toxic trade in create your own murder weapon. All right. I want to do two things here. First, I just want to bask in Paul agreeing with me for once, which is pretty sweet, honestly, from my standpoint. And number two, I do want to say that as a blanket measure, Alicia has actually been the conservative on this panel who in the last two weeks running has defended President Biden against the slings and arrows of BS when it comes to his so-called gaffes on Ukraine and has given him full credit. So when Alicia says that she's nitpicking Joe Biden, I give her I give her more credibility than I would give just about anyone else coming from her party. But again, I'm basking here. And you know what? I'm going to glow. You guys can't see him, but I can because we're I'm, I'm gonna, yes, He's glowing. Exactly. I'm going to drop the microphone on this topic because it can't it can't get any better for me. Look, let's turn let's turn to something else that I, I know it feels a little in the weeds. People don't care about foreign policy at all, although Americans have shown an admirable interest in the horrible situation going on in Ukraine. But when it comes to foreign elections, Americans, look, we barely care about our own elections, let alone what's going on in Europe. But Insiders are very worried right now in Washington because there is an awfully close election going on in France that's headed for a runoff in two weeks between the current French president, Emmanuel Macron, and Marine Le Pen. If that name, Le Pen, strikes any notes of recognition for you, it's because her father was a right-wing nutball extremist for many decades, and she has inherited the mantle. She has had all the admirable traits of a right-wing extremist. She um, talks, of course, about uh, the destabilizing influence of immigrants and returning the power to the people and yada, yada, yada. And oh, by the way, she has a crush on Vladimir Putin. I guess my question for this group is, what the heck, people? Why are candidates like this so successful in recent years in Western democracies? Because yes, Obviously, I'm drawing a parallel here to our very own Donald Trump and the fact that he's been able to run on racism, xenophobia, and just kind of unabashed BS. And yet it's enduringly popular. And now there is a chance that in the midst of this war of aggression from Russia and the fact that Marine Le Pen has hourly expressed admiration for Vladimir Putin, and she's identified as essentially a right-wing ultra-nationalist, she has a real chance of becoming the next president of France. What is going on? Why are we are we messing this up somehow? Alicia, I, I know you're not exactly a French domestic political analyst, but your thoughts. Well, first of all, I am a Francophile and I always have been. I love all things French, uh, except their socialism. But other than that, I am a complete Francophile, so I tend to follow things. Look, she's not going to win. I, I think it's an overstatement. We have to understand how this election breaks down. There were 12 candidates running. She came in second. Um, they have a different system than we do, where the top two go to a runoff, which will be Macron versus Le Pen. He got 28%. She got 23%. 10 other people split the rest of the field. Of the rest of the field, only one is a conservative. So, and all of them, except that one conservative right wing radio show host, has asked their supporters to get behind Macron. Like I said, she got 23 percent of a vote in a 12 way race um, and all but one of the rest are, are not, you know, are centrist to left. So I don't see the campaigns are math and we forget this. We look at the emotions of it. Of Oh, my goodness, she came in second. You know, it, it really doesn't work that way. The numbers aren't there for her to win. It's very simple. The other thing we're forgetting is apathy. 
Look, the number I'm going to tell you of people that voted in French is going to blow our minds and should embarrass us as an American electorate because it was 73.3%, which we would consider a significant turnout in the United States. In France, it's the lowest turnout they've had in 20 years. Um, you combine that with the reality that also in 20 years, no president in France has ever won re-election. So the fact that someone got 23%, you know, as a legitimate quote-unquote candidate will go to a runoff, it doesn't mean much. Um I think Macron is is very comfortable in his reelection, uh, which will be newsworthy as it hasn't happened since Chirac in 2002. Uh, and I don't think we should overstate the reality of she got 23 percent of the vote and Macron split the rest of the base. I find that very comforting. And that was an excellent trench analysis. I take back everything I said about you not being a French political analyst. You're you're a top dog. Thanks, French man. political analyst. Oui, yeah. Oui. Merci. yeah, you're going to put that right into your into your Twitter bio, aren't you? I, I'm going to get business cards and have the Alicia French, Preston yeah. Santhopoulos. <laughs> but yet, 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 you know, I, Alors, mes amis, suivez les frites. Uh, on peut on peut trouver le bouffe ici. Uh, où est le bouffe? Uh, on peut on peut demander en français. Où est le bouffe? Uh, C'est ici le bouffe. Uh, you know, so here's what you're doing, Hodes. You're not only mystifying the portion of our audience that doesn't speak French, but you're also yeah, dating know. yourself because you're making references to a political, well, not even a political ad, okay. a political moment from 40 years ago. You're, you're doing Where's the no, Beef? No, simply, right? simply an ad for Wendy's. Where's the beef? So look, look, the, here's, here's, here's the challenge. Europe um, is in chaos. Uh, the right wing feeds on chaos because it feeds on fear, as Alicia well knows. Um, although she's not a fear monger, let's let, uh, let let's give her credit. Alicia Preston Xanthopoulos is not a fear monger like many on the far right. Um, uh, Le Pen and the far right in France have been feeding on the anti-immigrant uh, fear that has beset Europe with waves of immigration. Uh, that's where um, uh, there's always been an issue for French uh, the French who are highly nationalistic and who want to protect their 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 white society and their Frenchness uh, against all comers, and that it's been a it's a growing problem. And plus, um, France has also been the scene of a series of terrible attacks carried out by Muslim extremists. Uh, in that uh, atmosphere. Um, the French uh, have some affection for the far right. They always have, they always will. Um, but Pe Le Pen is not going to win this election. And in fact, her, her star seems to be fading somewhat. Uh, her niece and another right winger uh, are, are, are looking to take the crown away from her. Uh, some are surprised that she did as well um, as as she did. In the end, Macron um, is going to win again. Well, I hope you're right. I am just reminded, I, I, I was reminded on a recent show of a moment on The Simpsons. It was one of my favorite moments where Mr. Smithers, the, the character who's the assistant to the evil Mr. Burns, is asked by Mr. Burns, how many eggs did it lay in your brain again? And Smithers says, I don't know. Frankly, one is too many. I kind of feel the same way about levels of support for Marine Le Pen and Donald Trump and all of these other right-wing cuckoos. It's not necessarily to me that they 
stand a true chance of winning. Although we were all dismissing Donald Trump's chance of winning, like not very long ago, it's that their levels of support are so high. And the one element of this that I haven't think, I don't think we've brought into the discussion yet is we know that this is a manipulable electorate in the US and in the UK and in France and in other Western democracies where bots and Russians and Russian bots can really drive and influence people's thinking. And I'm, I remain concerned that as we try to maintain free liberal societies, I mean, liberal in kind of the, the classic sense of the world, word, not like ideology, as we try to maintain free Western democracies, it's getting increasingly hard to do that with a social media environment where we can be so manipulated by interfering bad actors. And I just wonder if these enduring levels of support for these kinds of figures is an effect that we're seeing that's fueled largely by these new communications mediums and the the presence of Russians and trolls and bots and Russian bot trolls. I will leave it there. Although speaking of Russian influenced bot trolls, I guess that's a good segue to Don Jr.'s texts. I mean, it's come to light within the last few days that Donald Trump Jr., that gem of a human being, that avatar of, of upstanding behavior, was sending text messages in which he basically outlined all the things that Donald Trump Sr. would do to try to steal the election and have a constitutional coup. Paul, I guess I'll turn to you first. You're probably the least shocked person in the world. Not, none of us are particularly shocked about this, but what did you make of all of this coming to light that like Babe Ruth standing at the plate, Don Jr. called his shot. He said, this is where we're going. These are all the things we're going to do. He knew in advance, Here are, here's the illegal pathway. Here's the, the coup insurrection pathway that we're going to follow. What do you make of all that? The, the, the path was laid out in an article in the Atlantic months and months before the election. So it was not ter- terribly surprising that people knew that if we futz with the electors and call on the states and call on the electors in the states and the legislatures to, to mess with this, uh, we have a shot of, of messing with this election. Um, and it's not surprising that Donald Trump Jr., who is, as, as we know, related somewhat to the former president himself, was laying out what the former president and he and his aides and his conspirators and the other crooks, criminals and rascals who were planning to steal the election no matter what we're already thinking about. Um, it's just that Donald Trump Jr., the stupid idiot, was stupid enough to put it in a text, thinking he nobody would ever find out. Who would ever read my texts about this? Nobody. Why would it ever come out? Anyway, just another stupid brick in the stupid wall. Alicia, anything to add? Is this just is this just another brick in the wall, the tower of stupidity? Uh, it is. I mean, look, it's not surprising. We all know the Trump administration was looking for ways to stay in office. And I'm not surprised that Don Jr. is part of that discussion. But I'm going to go back to something. And I know Paul's made fun of me for this before, but I'm going to say it again. You know, Don Jr. in his text made the point to say we are in control of all potential paths. That meant all aspects of government. And he was 100 percent right. But guess what? 
didn't work. This continues to make me a proud American that our system is solid, that our system worked, that it could not be changed. The outcome of the people, uh, you know, that came from the people of the United States of America could not be altered. So I read something like this. There's, you know, it's, it's very little newsworthy because hello, of course that occurred. Um, but then it just reminds us that system worked. So two points on this. First of all, I'm going to, at risk of spraining a shoulder, patting myself on the back, I'm going to point out that I myself wrote an article two and a half years ago that I called World War T, in which I laid out the exact pathways that were available to Donald Trump to try and overturn the election. Paul, you're right. This was not exactly a state secret because I saw it coming. You saw it coming. A lot of people saw it coming. And I was able with a little bit of knowledge of the system and a fairly good research capacity to figure out the most likely pathways for overturning the election. And then we had Amherst College professor Lawrence Douglas on our show, and he wrote a whole book about this called Will He Go? And he outlined in a whole book, here's the ways that Donald Trump will try to subvert the election results and steal back the presidency and have a coup. And again, all of this, all of this was was completely out there and on the table. So I guess I agree that it's not it's not that surprising. The only place, the only place I'm going to disagree with anyone here, and again, I hate that it's you, Alicia, because I, I love it when we agree, is I don't find that much comfort in the idea that the system worked because we came so close. We came so darn close. We came within a few strands of nerve fiber inside Mike Pence's spine from the end of American democracy. I mean, we were we were there. And I'll tell you, having looked at this, and I, I'm not the constitutional expert. As a matter of fact, we're going to have the number one expert on all of this, Rick Hassan, on our show in two weeks. So people should check out the Beyond Politics podcast feed. He's written a whole book about all of the fixes that we need to, to put in, we're going to have them on the show to talk about it. I mean, many experts have looked at this and said, no, you don't understand. Like this is, this was a razor's edge. And it was partly by luck that we got out of really an unfixable constitutional fix. So it, I guess my reaction to this is sure. I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked by anything anymore, but it is awfully distressing. It's, it's a bad news story. Speaking of bad behavior by the Trump brood, I guess we call Jared Kushner part of that, honorary. Here's my question for you. We talked on this panel a week ago about Hunter Biden and the laptop story and the fact that it wouldn't really go away. And of course, right-wing media is just falling all over themselves. Their thirst for making this a thing is just it's just palpable. It's, oh, I feel bad for them. I really want to get them a drink. Well, now it turns out that six months after leaving the White House, Jared Kushner, the wife, uh, the wife, the husband of Ivanka Trump, secured a $2 billion investment. Folks, let me just repeat that here. He got a $2 billion investment. Republicans are losing their ever-loving minds over Hunter Biden getting a $3.5 million investment from a Chinese company. Kushner gets a $2 billion investment from a fund led by the Saudi crown prince. And that fund, the, the overseers of that fund, objected to this deal with Kushner. They said that these people are inexperienced. They said that we're probably going to lose our money. It's too big a risk. 
He said, we don't really know what these guys are up for. It, it's unsatisfactory in all aspects, I'm quoting here, and it would be a massive, excessive public relations risk. And despite that, Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, said, no, 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 we've got to do this deal for my boy, Jared, who, after all, ran flack for me in the aftermath of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So you you Americans are so, so squeamish. My boy, Jared Kushner, was there for me when the bone saw guys went to work. He was there for me to cover every track I made. I'm happy to give him the $2 billion. Look, they're, they're, the fund that it came from only has $620 billion in it to throw around. So $2 billion is nothing. It's, it's like, it's pocket change. It's subway fare. It's, it's a mere bagatelle. It's hardly noteworthy, except it is $2 billion. $2 billion used to be, you know, it's these days, $2 billion is here's $2 billion. Go to the corner store, get me some, uh, get me some dry dog food and buy yourself a pretzel and bring me the change. I mean, it's, it's just not that big a deal. Well, $2 billion for Jared Kushner. Look at all the hard work he did to deserve it. He worked so hard in the White House with all that good advice he gave to Donald Trump. He did such a good job keeping our relations fresh and open and honest, above board and close with those treasured Saudis. Of course he deserved a $2 billion investment. Never mind the fact that he has absolutely no experience whatsoever as an investment manager. And anybody who invests in his investment fund, well, I hope you don't go the way of Jaron Khashoggi. That's all I'll say. Alicia, I want to give you credit again, because when we talked about this last week, you basically said, look, the Hunter Biden thing is kids of powerful figures marketing in their parents' name. It's been happening since the beginning of time. Again, why do I feel so compelled to give you some credit here? It's because I feel bad because I won that little argument earlier. And so I, I, I do want to give you credit. According here, to Paul, but, he won the argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, <laughs> you know, he is the higher authority on this yeah. show. But Alicia, I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, gosh, darn it. Jared Kushner got literally a thousand times more money, dirty money than Hunter Biden ever got. Neither of them has done anything illegal here. And I mean, do you see some hypocrisy here? What, what's your, what do you make of all this? I don't really know what to make of all of it. I mean, I, mean, I have to be honest. I, I might be able to successfully analyze Franco presidential politics, but when it comes to why people are opening up accounts or funds or whatever they are, and other people are giving them lots of money so they can make money off of it, I just don't understand how that world works. And I don't understand why anyone would give Hunter Biden money to invest, why anyone would give Jared Kushner someone to invest, particularly a country like Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't know how it works, so I have no opinion. But yes, if you support Jared Kushner getting $2 billion to invest and you oppose Hunter Biden getting whatever it was he got to invest in his failed fund, then that's hypocritical. The same goes the opposite direction, though. If you want to call out Jared Kushner for getting two billion from Saudi Arabia, then you got to call out Hunter Biden. I will call them both out and say, I don't understand it. While I support nepotism, this seems to be a little much. And I don't know why everybody keeps giving everybody their money. I agree that it's the same issue in principle. The only thing is one is a thousand times bigger than the other. 
And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up here on the Balance of Power Roundtable. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks so much.